Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm dandy. I am happy to be talking about movies with friends. Uh, first up in controversies and controversies, turns out Spike Lee is a 9-11 truther. Uh, at least that's one possible takeaway from the following snippet of an interview the famed director gave to the New York Times uh, when asked why he included the perspective of 9-11 conspiracy theorists who believed that planes could not have destroyed the Twin Towers. Uh, Lee responded thusly, quote, I got questions. The amount of heat that it takes to make steel melt, that temperature is not reached. And then the juxtaposition of the way Building 7 fell to the ground when you put it next to other building collapses that were demolitions, it's like you're looking at the same thing. And quote, when I read this, I thought to myself, well, here we go again. Uh, Spike Lee is kind of prone to this sort of thing. In his documentary on Katrina, he included several folks who suggested that the Levies were blown during that disaster in order to drown and kill black neighborhoods. Um, I assumed it had be kind of a tossed off aside in his new documentary uh, that's on the last 20 years of New York City. But nope, according to pieces in Vanity Fair and Slate, it was a full like 30 minute back and forth between truthers and National Institute uh, of Standards and Technology engineers arguing uh, the merits of 9-11 truth nonsense with Spike Lee kind of being like, yeah, I don't know. This sounds pretty reasonable when the when the truthers talk. Um, these things have been debunked a million times over the last 20 years, and it's, uh, you know, not... It's not not great to have them out there. Uh, after those pieces were published in Vanity Fair and Slate, Spike Lee announced he was re-editing the film and seems to have uh, removed it from the final cut. Great. Um, again, this is nothing new from Spike Lee. I'm kind of surprised the folks at HBO and Warner Media didn't say like, hey, maybe we shouldn't do this because putting insane people uh, in front of tons of new audience members is not a great thing. Um, uh, but we are very much living through a paranoid moment, one in which conspiracy theories like QAnon uh, and misinformation about the relative dangers of vaccines spread like wildfire through the swamps of social media. And some artists like screenwriters Craig Mazin and John August uh, think filmmakers have a part to play in fanning those flames. Let's listen to a clip from their recent podcast on this topic. John August goes first and then it's uh, Craig. We have some complicity in sort of narrativizing conspiracies and sort of building a universe in which like, you know, there's always a twist and there's always a secret bad guy organization behind stuff. So I think I would be nervous writing a conspiracy thriller right now. But Craig, I'm curious what you think. I'm not going to go all the way and say morally wrong. I'm going to say it ought to give strong, clear pause. If you are thinking about writing a conspiracy theory story, because we have absolutely fed into this. The insistence that the government is portrayed with, uh, you know, the shop. That's my favorite phrase, the shop. It's, uh, it's even beyond the CIA. It's some secret thing beyond the CIA and the NSA that basically can do whatever they want. They hear everything. They see everything. They're, they're completely all-knowing, all-seeing. They can do all this stuff. Look at the born identity. The entire concept of the born identity is insane. I'm torn. Because I think there's no reason a conspiracy theory can't play a role in a movie. Um, but I also think it's clear that these things are coloring how we, how we people just in general see the world, the hidden hand, the secret power, the knowledge that you and only you have uncovered uh, a, a secret truth, right? These are intoxicating ideas uh, and they are frankly destabilizing. They are destabilizing events in society. Um, Alyssa, what responsibility, if any, do you think artists have to tamp down this sort of thinking? Oh, 
Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I, you know, I'm hesitant to look, it's hard to assign artists individual moral responsibility for something that is mostly toxic in the aggregate. And there's obviously a difference between saying, you know, like there are bad guys who control shield and let's throw back to the paranoid thrillers of the seventies and saying that a pandemic that's killed 640,000 people doesn't exist. Um, you know, there are, there are things the government does that are shady and that deserve to be covered up. There are, you know, there are secrets, there are powerful people who play an influential role in the world that ought to be uncovered. And so asking one person to sort of strike the overall balance, I think is really difficult. Um, but I think the obligations are probably somewhat different in documentary filmmaking than they are in fictional filmmaking. Um, in part because, you know, people believing that Hydra has taken over S.H.I.E.L.D. has no real world impact uh, in a way that, you know, saying that China created COVID-19 does. Um, yeah. So well, I... Yeah. Let, I, let me um so let me let me just back up a little bit to that podcast that podcast we heard a bit from. There's there's another section in the podcast where they talk about and this is something you've you've written about I think Alyssa that uh you know when when folks sit on juries they expect CSI levels. Yeah. of evidence, right? They expect like we want like one to one matches on bullets and we need DNA evidence of everybody that's ever been in this room, and we need to get it all sorted out. And that sort of thing doesn't exist. But it it is having a clear impact on yeah. trials. Yeah. And I this is why this is why I would push back slightly on the idea that like yes, obviously there is no shield and no hydra right. in the real world. But but when you create this this kind of permission structure where people say, well, how do we know if we can trust? This because, you know, everything I, I like, nothing is trustworthy anymore. I don't know. Yeah. Um, and I think that there are sort of a couple of a couple of things going on there. Um, I mean, I think trying to tackle sort of what's appealing about conspiratorial thinking is maybe the more interesting way to go at this, um, because there, I mean, there's a very good book that came out a couple of years ago um, called A Lot of People Are Saying that's about sort of a shift in conspiratorial, conspiratorial thinking in America. Um, and what the authors contend is that um, conspiracy theories used to be a way to explain a world that seemed sort of fundamentally unexplainable, right? It's like it is hard to believe that, as, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald – acted alone and in, in an effort to give meaning to the trauma of John F. Kennedy's assassination, people try to find, try to implant Oswald in sort of a larger web of conspiracy to explain how he could have pulled off something that seems inexplicable. Same with, you know, Jack Ruby eventually shooting Oswald. Um, but what they argue is that in recent years, there has been an conspiracy theories have turned towards injecting chaos into a system that's actually fairly orderly, right? Like there's nothing that's explained by saying that a bunch of democratic operatives are trafficking kids out of a, out of a pizza joint in Northwest Washington, DC, right? Like there's not an unanswered question there. Um, same with, you know, QAnon. Um, and so I think that, 
you know, and, th- and this is where kind of movie making comes in. Conspiracy theories are a really easy device, and conspiracy theories and paranoid filmmaking are just an easy device to make the world seem more interesting than it is, right? It's like they literally give the hero something to do. And to that extent, um, and to the extent that people increasingly seem to want to be kind of the heroes of their own stories in more dramatic ways than life as it normally operates seems to offer, that's where I might start feeling kind of queasy about um, a reliance or a sort of an easy default to conspiratorial storytelling as a mode of generating drama, right? Um, You know, there are plenty of dramas and conflicts that it's possible to tell stories about without suggesting that like a shadowy, shadowy evil cabal that can only be, you know, conquered by someone doing their own research can bring down. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, in terms of creating a permission structure, in terms of feeding the desire for kind of chaos and ugliness and conflict, I can see wanting to step away with that from that. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, in terms of, you know, Lee's documentary, um, I think there is something sort of separate going on there in the sense that, you know, Lee is someone who I think clearly has been willing to kind of engage with conspiratorial thinking in the past. And I mean, I guess HBO just sort of felt like, well, he's Spike Lee. We let Spike Lee do what he wants to do. Um, and that's a weird path for both him and the network to have gone down. Um, it's I can see how the stones started rolling down the slippery slope, but it's interesting that there was not a check yeah. at any point in that process. Yeah, Peter, let's let's drill down just briefly on the on the difference between documentary and narrative filmmaking here, because I do think that like, look, there's a, you know, there 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 is a broad misunderstanding that documentaries have to be an objective truth, that they are essentially news reports in the mold of a New York Times story. Right. Like documentaries have perspective. Documentaries are allowed to do all sorts of different things. But there there is still um, a suggestion that what you are seeing is accurate and what you are seeing is is something that, you know, should be believed. And so when, you know, I when 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 you start having somebody on there saying, you know, well, fire the fire from jet fuel can't get hot enough to, you know, melt steel beams. How can we how can we believe that these towers were destroyed by airplanes? It it it's it's bad. It's just bad as as, you know, as as filmmaking as doc as like basic documentary filmmaking goes. And there and 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 as Alyssa says, like there are all sorts of things that you could talk about if you want to get into a conspiratorial mindset. You know, why why did the, the Bush administration push the idea that there were weapons of mass destruction in in Iraq? And well, you know, there there are other avenues you could go down here, but this is a particularly nonsensical one. So look, Spike Lee is wrong. Um, about 9-11. Uh, he's, and I think it's disappointing that he is entertaining these conspiracy theories, uh, although in some ways it's also in character, as you've pointed out. But look, I think it's also possible to sort of to place too much emphasis on, oh, look, here is a big movie. Here is a high-profile uh, example of somebody entertaining these conspiracy theories and thinking that it all sort of comes back to them. Um, and in particular, if you listen to the the podcast clip you played, right, uh, these guys, they're screenwriters, they're producers, they certainly know more about the um, internal workings of Hollywood and of movie making than I do. Um, they're smart guys, they make good movies. 
At the same time, I think they are making an error in thinking that Hollywood has more power than it really has. And in some ways, it's a weird kind of uh, it's related to the same error that you get when you have politicians blaming violent music, rap lyrics, uh, video games, violent movies, whatever, for uh, real world violence, shootings, that sort of thing. Right. And so you, you people sort of think that that movies have this kind of this talismanic power to control and you know uh, people's behaviors in the real world. And while again, I don't think that Spike Lee should be entertaining these ideas, and I think he's wrong. I, I just think that people can overweight, um, can overweight the the influence that a lot of these things end up having. Uh, yeah, you know, Peter, I, I take your point. I take your point. I think it's it's probably. It's probably true that Hollywood thinks of itself as more powerful than it actually is. And it is kind of a weird inversion of the, hey, we're not uh, turning your kids into serial killers meme. Um, that that said, I don't think we should underestimate the ability uh, that media has to brain poison the boomers. You know, maybe all the maybe all of the D. Snyder stuff was a bunch of projection. Um, but the uh, but, the you know, the, I, I do think there is something I think there's something to be said here. Um for the idea that Hollywood is kind of creating this 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 idea that there is more order in the world than than there is not, and it's kind of an inversion of the thing that Alyssa had mentioned uh, about the chaos being injected into the system. You know, saying like, "Oh well, you know, what about this random thing? You know, why is uh, how can we be sure that's not happening? Um, how can we be sure that you know uh, this this isn't uh, all a plan?" That has been has been ordained to to kind of uh, rule the world, right? I don't know. Um, I do think that it is. So, I do so think look, it is the world is an uncertain place, and I, I just think that if this if uncertainty isn't being injected from Hollywood, it's going to be injected from somewhere else. People are going to have reasons to distrust institutional systems and they have reasons like they will find them because some people are just prone to that kinds of distrust. And because societies like on the one hand, you want societies that have high trust and, and where people can basically sort of feel like their neighbors are not secretly out to get them. On the other hand, there's always sort of a low level of like, wait, is this really on the level, especially when it comes to sort of relations between, let's call it ordinary people and elites, right, between the government and just sort of the people who, who are there. There's always a suspicion that the government is doing something secret and bad behind your back. And you know what? Sometimes the government actually is, though usually not nearly uh, in as elaborate and perfectly managed a form as you see in, I don't know, you know a Tony Scott film. Um but I think it's actually just I I I, I want to defend not conspiracy theories themselves and not bad ideas and not stuff that Spike Lee is saying. But I want to defend allowing this stuff to be part of the conversation uh, a little bit. I think a multiplicity of ideas and allowing people to just sort of say stuff, even even and sometimes especially when it is wrong, when it is obviously wrong is a better public square and a better way to conduct public discourse than thinking, you know what, there's a bunch of this stuff that's just really off limits that we can't ever say. Because part of what happens is, so first of all, some of those, sometimes those people who have the crazy ideas that everybody knows are wrong, sometimes those people do turn out to be right. And second of all, when you rule out 
certain ideas and certain topics of discussion. What happens is that stuff just gets pushed underground. It gets pushed into, uh, what are we going to call it, the you know, dark web forums or whatever. I, does the dark web even really exist or is that mostly just like I've a thing? I've seen that in movies. The, it's a thing. Yeah, right? Like, but like it gets pushed into into less public, less visible places. And it actually in some ways becomes more dangerous that way in the same way that you know, that prohibition on drugs and on alcohol ends up pushing consumption of those things into more dangerous forums and actually makes sort of each uh, median unit of whatever consumed more likely to be dangerous and more likely to have problems. And so I, I think that, you know, the, the solution to bad speech and yes, much of this speech, the conspiracy theorizing that you guys are talking about, is what I would describe as bad speech. It is based on bad ideas. Uh, it is uh, premised in some case on false information or just a bad faith, um, you know, disingenuousness. Uh, at the same time, the solution to that is for people who are right, for other people to yeah. argue with them and to yeah, just sure, argue but, with them and argue with them and argue with them. I mean, look, look it's, it's hard to say because nobody, none of us have seen the actual Spike Lee documentary. Uh, I trust the people who have seen it, though, um, who are fans of Spike Lee's work to have uh, accurately conveyed what it what it sure. said. And the, the other thing is there's, look, no, there's is, no controversy to teach here. There's no like both sides to did airplanes knock down the towers. There's no there's no. And there I think there is actually a danger to having more speech of this sort out there because this guy, Richard Gage, Richard Gage is the. Uh, the the person who serves as Spike Lee's kind of primary source on the, uh, you know, uh, Bush did 9-11 uh, argument here, right? And his, his he, he believes in many numbers of conspiracies, among them, for instance, the idea that the COVID vaccine is a depopulation effort put forth by the government. So once you start saying, well, maybe this Richard, let me look into this Richard Gage guy who I've never heard of before, but now I'm seeing on HBO Max for the first time. I wonder what he actually thinks about this thing. And then you start going down the rabbit hole of, oh, wait, he also thinks that a COVID, the COVID vaccine is is poison and that the government is killing us with it. I, there, I, I, I like have to, I strongly disagree agree with the idea that there is no negative consequence to having stuff like this in the public square. Now, I, I agree that there are there are plenty of like reasonable topics that should be open for discussion uh, and that people should be arguing about. This is not among them. And I think it's I think it is very I, I think it is I think it is perfectly fine to have somebody out there saying uh, no, HBO Max and Warner Media, you should not be uh, putting Richard Gage on your streaming service for 30 minutes to talk about nonsense that is that is just like obviously untrue that there is not an actual controversy over. Uh, as a lizard person, I think you would say that. And you're just trying to defend your lizard person prerogative here. No, right. look, I, I actually think that that the uh, the sequence of events that we saw play out surrounding this documentary, um, in some ways, I, I would say it proves my point. This is my argument is that you stop bad speech with good speech. And what people mm -hmm. did was they watched this thing. They said, this is bad and this is wrong. And what has happened is that it is being re-edited and it is going to be, it's going to come out in a different form because people argued with it. Tellingly though, tellingly though, HBO tried to hide this. They did not send the screener for the last uh, two hours of the, of the show or for the last hour of the show to critics that they, they watched this thing. Critics watched this thing and had no idea. There was a, 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 a one of the critics, I think for the Hollywood reporter who had written a glowing review uh, saw, saw the New York times interview and was like, uh, what, what's in the last hour? 
This is because why... they had no idea. And so it just would have been it just would have been out there. Yeah. And yes, 90% of the people would have been like, okay, this is crazy once they heard the the explanation. But some very large number of people would have started Googling this guy's nonsense. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a real problem. Well, and I mean, we've touched on so many different threads here that it's difficult to sum it up. But I think a couple points are worth making. If, first, if individual filmmakers feel like this is a trope that they slid into easily and want to be think more critically about, there's nothing wrong with that. It's fine to say, you know, I just don't want to tell this kind of story. I don't want to be lazy about this. Yeah. You know, I feel uncomfortable. Um, second, I think this is 9-11 truth is it's easy to forget, I think, how widespread it was and how popular it was on the left, frankly. Um, you know, on my side of the aisle, this was, you know, it was always a fringe theory, but it was a fringe theory that got a hearing various places. Um, and to a certain extent, it came out of that sort of emotional reaction. Jen, um, Jen Senior has a great piece in The Atlantic about a family who lost their son on 9-11, where the father turned to 9-11 truth as sort of a coping mechanism, um, as a way to put the energy generated by his grief somewhere. But I think it is shocking to have this show up in a Spike Lee documentary, um, in part because it seems like a conspiracy theory that had largely been settled by the kind of clash of ideas that Peter is talking about. And so to see it resurface um, kind of questions that premise and is unnerving. Uh, third, I think there's obviously a difference between saying, you know, this guy can faff around on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whatever he wants to do, and Spike Lee and HBO actively giving him sort of more amplification. Like maybe there's a difference between, maybe the best way to put it is there's a difference between allowing everyone access to the same basic soapbox and elevating them. And I think that's where some of the sort of discomfort and distinction comes in. But finally, I think that one of the reasons that movies about conspiracies can be useful because, is because, as Peter says, some of them do actually exist. And to a certain extent, in a very conspiratorially minded landscape, it's worth demonstrating what it actually takes to uncover one of those. Um, I recently rewatched Spotlight, which is a you know, fact-based movie about the Boston Globe's reporting on the um, – the local Catholic Church's clerical sexual abuse scandal. And there is straight up, the Catholic Church operated a conspiracy to protect priests who were preying on kids. But part of what is interesting about the movie is not just that the conspiracy exists, but what it takes to nail down and uncover that conspiracy. And in a moment when the idea of doing your own research is sort of constantly invoked by people who dive into conspiracy theories, you know, it's useful to demonstrate what a conspiracy actually looks like, and what it takes to uncover and bring one down um, in a way that is concrete and real and not like, I watched some random person's video about Immervectum on YouTube and now I'm a scientist, right? Um, yeah. there, is, there is a balance of these ideas. It's We don't have to throw the sort of useful movies about the way power operates in the shadows out with the crazy. Yeah. Peter, response about your ideas having failed in the public square? I mean, I, fact I just— 9-11 conspiracy theories remain resurgent? Well, I think that Spike Lee's documentary and the controversy over this, uh, and, and that tells you— Or controversy possibly. What I'm going not to— not to spoil anything here. Um, no, I mean, again, having this out in public like this 
tells us something that is important, which is that these ideas have not been settled and they haven't gone away. And that even though like, yes, I, I mean, I, I, I agree completely. I, I just was never even like remotely, you know, sort of interested or sort of suspected that, uh, that nine 11 was anything other than what it obviously was. Um, I saw, so you know, I just want to be clear. I am not saying I think these, uh, uh, that these conspiracy theories are anything other than that at the same time. The fact that this was, you know, put into an HBO documentary, that the suits allowed it, that Spike Lee, a, a prominent, smart, interesting filmmaker, uh, decided to go down this road, um, it tells you that this stuff is out there and it still persists and that that is actually useful information. And in some ways, I would rather have it be out there front and center for us to argue about and for us to say, hey, Spike Lee, this is wrong and you are leading people down a bad path and you have made bad decisions and this is inaccurate. Um, and it is uh, and like people are going to trust you on this in ways that they should not. I would rather have it out there rather than, uh, you know, on the uh, on the dark web. Which is a thing. Again, Which I've seen it thing. in movies. It's where I get all my drugs. Uh, all right. So is it a controversy or a controversy that Spike Lee included and then removed a 9-11 conspiracy theory in his documentary on New York City? Uh, Peter. It's a controversy. Alyssa. It's a controversy. It's a controversy. He included it. And it's a controversy that he removed it. Uh, it is, in fact, a good thing that he removed it. Um, if you enjoy the show and who doesn't, it's great. Uh, the only person who doesn't enjoy the show is probably a lizard person. Uh, make sure to head over to atma.tothebulwark.com where Peter and I are going to discuss Candyman, the new Candyman, while Alyssa, no fan of horror movies, asks us questions. Uh, it's the biggest movie at the box office this week uh, and an interesting movie, if a messy one. So we hope you will tune in and listen to that uh, bonus episode. Now on to the main event. What if... George W. Bush did 9-11. No, I'm sorry. What <laughs> if the new show positing alternate universes of MCU events that is streaming now on Disney Plus, if you grew up reading comic books in the 1980s and 1990s, and if you didn't, what's the matter with you? Uh, you are probably familiar with the what if comics that were on every drugstore spinner. Uh, Marvel took a famous event or issue or storyline or run of books from their vast library, posited something else might have happened, uh, and then ran with the idea. So for instance, uh, there was an issue of what if that asked, what if the, the Punisher had killed Spider-Man, which was riffing on the events of Amazing Spider-Man number 129, which is the first appearance of the Punisher in which the murderous vigilante is working for an assassin, uh, working as an assassin for the evil scientist known as the Jackal. And yes, I knew all of this from memory because my brain is filled with useless junk. Uh, you can see a full lineup of the what if ideas at Wikipedia, um, but they're generally along the lines of what if character X had died or what if character X became character Y, something like what if the Punisher became Captain America or what if Peter Parker became the Punisher. The Punisher, you'll note, comes up a lot uh, in this series of books because he was very, very popular. Uh, Disney Plus's iteration of the show takes the conceit and applies it to the MCU. This presents one relatively big problem. The MCU was far more limited in scope than the entirety of the Marvel comic book universe. Uh, and while Disney has the rights to the X-Men characters and Fantastic Four and everybody else they picked up in the Fox merger, none of these characters has actually been in the MCU. So it's basically just, uh, they, can, they can do what ifs for pretty much everyone who is in Avengers Infinity War, except maybe Spider-Man. I don't know if they, if they can do that. We, we'd have to see. Um, and while that's a fair number of characters, we're talking about 20 movies or so rather than 20,000 comics or so, give or take 20,000 more comics. I don't even know how many comics have been 
put out by the time What If stopped. Um, here's the other issue with the show is it's just not very good. It's, it's not that good. The first episode asks, what if Captain Carter were the first Avenger? Sharon Carter, of course, is the female British operative working with the U.S. military when Steve Rogers becomes Captain America. The episode posits that she got the, st- the serum instead of Steve and becomes the world's first super soldier. Um, I initially, I literally turned the show off after like six minutes into the first episode when an American officer voiced by Bradley Whitford, of all people, uh, said there's no way a woman could be a super soldier because she might break a nail on the battlefield. Sexism, awful, so bad. It was like hide under the table cringe. It was just, it was the cringiest thing I've ever seen. Uh, But I turned it back on because I'm a professional and I knew we were doing this for the show. The rest of the episode um, suggests that Captain Carter would have led uh, to Howard Stark creating a sort of proto-Iron Man and the Red Skull summoning Cthulhu for some reason reason. Kind of weird, but all right, fine, whatever. It's a, it's, a, it's an idea, at least. Um, episode two is a bit better, asking what if T'Challa, the Black Panther, became a Star-Lord? Apparently, he would have been an amazing Mary Sue, just rescuing world after world from ruin. It would have been great. He would have turned Thanos into a good guy. Sure, why not? Um, and the third a- episode asks, what if the world lost its mightiest heroes, positing an alternate universe in which the Avengers were killed before having a chance to defend the world against Loki's invasion in the Avengers? Um, it's probably the best of these episodes, but that's not really saying very much, it's still not that good. Uh, we are talking about this show because we've decided to be Marvel, Marvel completists, Peter. Yeah. Um, but uh, I Peter. gotta be honest, this is the first thing Marvel has done that I really just had no interest whatsoever in finishing. Peter. I think, yeah. So <laughs> this is your fault. I blame shame. you for this episode. Uh, this is not my fault. This is <laughs> to my credit. Our oh. listeners are going to thank me. Because they're all watching What If and wondering, what if Peter and Sonny and Alyssa talked about it for 15 minutes on the show? Uh, Are there 15 (laughs) minutes worth of things to say about these two episodes? That is actually a little bit of an issue here. Um, This is, I did not find it all that bad. What I found it was just incredibly forgettable and inessential. It just doesn't have any staying power. I literally have to have the Wikipedia page here uh, open in front of me to remember like which episode had which characters and what the basic like summary of of each one of these episodes is because there's just not very much of interest. Um, And I think the format is really working against them here. So, uh, you know, it's not just that they are limited to things that happen in the Marvel Universe. It's that they're trying to compress all of this into 35 minutes. Marvel Cinematic Universe. Right. In the Marvel Cinematic Cinematic Universe. Universe. Um, And 35 minutes is just not long enough to tell a particularly interesting version of any of these stories. And so what you have are these super compressed three-act structures They're still trying to deliver like a full cinematic experience, except there's no room for the characters to like actually develop, have relationships. There's no sort of breathing like like Marvel's blockbusters are big and formulaic, but they actually do allow their characters to sort of sit and talk with each other and define themselves. And that's part of the success of the Marvel Universe. Uh, That's true even in the television shows. In fact, in some ways more so, even in Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which I didn't like very much, but there's a lot of just sitting and talking, sort of working through, often basic, not all that interesting, but somewhat like memorable ideas that give you a sense of who these people are and how they tick and why they why they're doing what they are doing. Um, and all of that is like compressed into a couple of 30 second exchanges in each one of these episodes. And so you have characters who have been given 
new leases, right? New, basically new, whole new characters, right? You've got Peggy Carter. Now she's, now she's Captain America or whatever. Um, except we don't really get to know her as Captain America. And you can imagine, I think, a two-hour, $200 million MCU-style movie in which we actually get to learn what she would be like as Captain America, but you can't do it, in th- or I w- maybe you can do it in 35 minutes, but Marvel has not figured out how to do it in 35 minutes in this show. Well, and more than that, their addiction to having everything be sort of an action story means that they don't actually spin out the consequences of any of these what ifs in any particular way, right? Like the what if Peggy Carter becomes Captain America, the answer to that is like Peggy Carter beats Hydra, not like all of gender norms in the future of superheroism changes, right? Like if T'Challa is Star-Lord, there's like a bunch of international peace, then the blip never happens. And like, what, like to what does Thanos devote his energies? If not like getting the infinity gems together and genociding half of all life in the galaxy, right? Like that's, that's the actual interesting question that's posited by the what if. I Uh, I do like how Thanos is constantly pitching like his greatest idea is like, what if I killed half of people and, and everybody, he's like, (laughs) it's like the screenplay. He didn't get around to writing. (laughs) I'm not wrong. I just didn't do it. (laughs) Exactly. Um, But it's like, it's all boring. It doesn't matter. It's, I mean, it's all ends up being in service of like an action story, not a here's five minutes where the new scenario is. And then you jump forward and see what the implications are of anything. Also, just come on, like wasting, I mean, poor Uatu is stuck watching all of this stuff anyway, but like having this be the way that they throw away the concept of the watcher is just like, so my understanding is that the watcher is not going to be thrown away and that Jeffrey Wright will appear in the live action MCU as the watcher, perhaps in guardians of the galaxy three, um, in the James Gunn or the Eternals or in in one of the, that that he is actually going to be reused here. And he has an incredible voice that just sounds great coming out of big speakers and a subwoofer, but, um, it's not (laughs) a right now. He just has that like great, like low uh, voice where you can make everything sound super interesting. He's great. great And he's wasted because he gets like three lines a show. I mean, it just, well, he's, he's Alfred Hitchcock introducing, yeah, I mean, the, 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 I would say the problem with the show is the same problem with the comic book series, which, as you say, Peter, is that it was totally inessential. I owned I owned literally yeah. one issue of What If, and it was the one I recited at the beginning of this again, because I'm a giant nerd. Uh, but like it was it was a show. It was a book that I just never had any interest in reading because it was like, well, I don't care about these standalone stories. I don't care. Like n- this isn't this isn't well done enough or interesting enough for me to like pick up every week off the spinner it's, it's well, the best there's a reason standalone there's stories. a reason the punisher was so heavily used is because the, the people would only pick up the episode or the issues that like uh featured characters they knew and loved the best standalone stories in the 80s 90s marvel comic book canon you know pre-movies were always the ones that were done in uh, as miniseries rather than as one shots and so all right. of those 24 <laughs> and 48 page one shots i'm not saying that there were no good ones but they they're just sketches and they and Craven's they're, last hunt is about the they're other. almost oh there's a there's a term in like the science fiction world um for like a super short sci-fi story that uh has that is just like we're gonna deliver you the concept and then there's no actual story it's just like 
it's basically just what if, uh, you know, we all had uh, Twitter implants in our brains, uh, right? And then there's no story. It's just what if that? And they show it to you for a little bit. Um, and that, the answer and this, is I think we'd all kill ourselves. Um, this this uh, definitely has some of that. I, I actually – I I was thinking about this in the context of other more successful genre cartoons. Um, so I have been watching, obviously, Batman the Animated Series a lot recently. And I mean, I've watched it a lot over the course of my life because I'm it's... not sure why that's obvious. Why is that? Because is it that, just came onto it's great. Uh, HBO Max and I'm me. And it's Batman, right? And gotcha. so HBO Max gotcha. now has Batman the Animated Series, Batman Beyond, all of the sort of uh, Paul Dini, uh, uh, Bruce Tim, Andrea Romano uh, era of DC animated shows, all of which are just excellent. And some of these tell uh, longer stories, especially once you get to Justice League. But the Batman the Animated Series episodes are all pretty self-contained. There's not a lot of uh, sort of serialization. And they managed to tell these really smart, really uh, like deep character driven stories that feel expertly paced. And they're 22 minutes long or 24 minutes long or something like that, you know, because they were 30 minute shows built for commercials in the early 1990s. And they feel somehow or another, they feel slower and and less hurried without feeling, uh, you know, sort of dull and, and, and boring at all. There's plenty of action in these in those shows. And, you know, then I was also thinking about uh, the other uh, the other cartoon that I watch uh, pretty frequently, which is um, the Clone Wars, which is the Star Wars show that has been running and now has basically been rebooted by Disney Plus as the Bad Batch. Um, And it's it's uh, Dave Filoni's attempt to fill in the gaps pretty much of the of the prequels um, and to and to rebuild uh, some of the story around the Star Wars. George Lucas Star Wars prequels um, to make it make more sense and make it more interesting. And it's heavily serialized. It works really well. And, um, and that show, like, again, it's 22, 25 minutes uh, per episode. They, they take like little, they take moments to actually just sort of have the characters talk with each other about what they're doing, why, who they are. And there's, there's, there's real character conflict in a way that, just doesn't exist here. And I, I think part of that is just part of it's the format. And part of it, I, I got to say is it just seems like the writers here are just not up to Marvel's usual quality. And I think you particularly see that in the star Lord episode, uh, where you've got the writer is, you know, that you've got all these like James Gunn style quips that are built into the, you know, the, the, the revised yep. star Lord crew here. And, not one of them lands. The yeah. the Thanos stuff works pretty well, but not one of these like quippy bits lands. Whereas if you go back and watch Guardians of the Galaxy, either of them now, that they're both just filled with like delightfully fun dialogue, uh, quippy banter that is super memorable. That is uh, that is quick. It's not even like it's sort of the it's dwelled on you know uh, for long segments. Um, and this show yeah. just can't land any of that stuff. Well, the show, the show also, I mean, the problem with the Star-Lord episode in particular is that it totally misunderstands what makes Guardians of the Galaxy work, which is that they're a bunch of losers. Yeah. They're a bunch of, they're a bunch of dorks and losers. And like when Chris Pratt is like, maybe you've heard of me, I'm Star-Lord and nobody knows what he's talking about. Like, that's funny. Yeah. But when, when T'Challa says, I'm Star-Lord and everyone's like, oh my God, can I have your autograph? That's amazing. That's not funny. It makes you, it makes him the overdog. He's yeah. like no longer the underdog. He's not interesting to watch. So I don't know. 
I, it doesn't work. Show doesn't work. Uh, uh, Alyssa, thumbs- how do you feel about this being Chadwick Boseman's actual last performance? I mean, wait, did he voice? Was that his actual pretty voice? Pretty sure. I'm a, I'm going to effort that real quick. Just go ahead, keep talking cuz I I need to I want to make sure that I just I I have no feelings about this show. Yes. It like passed in and out of my brain and I barely remember it despite having watched the last episode 2 hours before this podcast. It just it makes no impression. I and they just don't seem committed to it at all. It's like oh they God, needed something him. to fill the content void, I guess, but Oh, Lordy, is it forgettable? God. Yeah, so there's a, yeah. we've seen three episodes and there's going to be six more of these guys. I, I, I'm looking forward to us uh, doing a Marvel him. completionist. You can watch them. I, this is going to be the first time, I think this is going to be the first time I check out of a Marvel product. No. I'm disappointed. Uh, so this, to answer think, your earlier question. I think this baby is going to arrive early, so I don't have to discuss the show anymore with you. Sonny, to yeah. answer your earlier question, Spider-Man is in this show, not only as Peter Parker, but as zombie hunter Spider-Man. So okay. you're gonna miss Zombie Hunter Spider Man. I'll have to. I'll keep an eye out. For, I'll watch the. I'll read the Wikipedia recap. <laughs> All right. Uh, so what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on what if Peter? Thumbs down. Sadly, Alyssa. <laughs> no, just don't waste your brain. It's a thumbs down for me too because I uh, did not care for this. So that's that's that. Sadly sadly a miss. All right, that is it for today's show. If you loved it, make sure to check out our members only bonus episode on Candyman. Candyman, 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 Candyman. Now he's going to come kill you. Sorry. Uh, And make sure to tell your friends a strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. And if we don't grow, we'll die. You did not love today's episode. Please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. Bye.